0: Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Dan Milner, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer at ASCP and one of your hosts.
1: Hey, everybody. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your co hosts. I'm an ASCP certified medical technologist. I work in the publications department at ASCP. And today we're going to be talking about consolidation and total laboratory automation in the microbiology lab. Uh, we've got some really cool guests lined up, and I'll let them introduce themselves.
2: Hi, my name is Sarah Boss. I am the Director of Clinical and Molecular Microbiology at Northern Light Laboratory in the great state of Maine.
3: Hi, I'm Carissa Colbreth. I'm Medical Director of Infectious Disease at Tricor Reference Labs in Albuquerque, New Mexico.
4: Hi, I'm Mark Fisher. I'm an Associate Professor of Pathology at the University of Utah School of Medicine and Medical Director of Bacteriology and Special Microbiology at ARUP Labs in Salt Lake City, Utah.
5: Hi, I'm Erin McElvania. I'm Director of Clinical Microbiology at North Shore University Health System in Evanston, Illinois, and Clinical Assistant Professor of Pathology at University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine.
1: Hey, everybody. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. I think we're going to have a really great discussion today. But before we get to that, I've got a few housekeeping items to take care of. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide, you guessed it, continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA category one credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commiserate with the extent of the participation in the activity. And we've got a few disclosures to disclose. Dr. Colbreth has disclosed the following relevant financial relationship with a commercial interest. She's uh, been a consultant for Copan Diagnostics. And Dr. McAveigna has disclosed the following relevant financial relationship with a commercial interest. She's been a speaker for Beckton Dickinson. All right, so now that's all out of the way. Um, Let's get uh, the ball rolling on questions. So I guess I, I want to start off, I always like to start off with like defining things so we are all kind of on the same page. Within the laboratory sphere, what does the term consolidation refer to? And um, what are some examples specifically for microbiology labs that you guys are familiar with?
5: I think consolidation can be, be many things. You can consolidate many tests onto one platform or many tests into one assay. But I think for the purposes today, you're looking at consolidating many different laboratories into a central laboratory, or many hospitals maybe into a hospital system?
2: Our hospital system is an example. We have 10 different hospitals that our laboratory serves, and those hospitals range in size from 25 to over 400 beds. So I think it makes a good example because microbiology is so specialized that it doesn't make sense, it's not practical for the smaller hospitals to address
3: all aspects of it. Yeah, and you know, our system has taken a similar approach, but in addition to consolidating within a health system, we've also consolidated laboratory services across multiple health systems. So right now we have three large health systems um, where we perform all of the laboratory services and we're the sole source laboratory provider for three separate systems along with a commercial arm of multiple smaller hospitals that are outside of those systems. Um, And so that presents a lot of opportunities and some crazy challenges that I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more today.
4: Being in a, a national reference lab, that's sort of the ultimate consolidation but just for certain tests, right? So um, we obviously have a lot of tests coming in from all over the country that there may be tests that each individual facility doesn't perform frequently. And so it makes more sense to send it out we see this sort of at the very macro level, but we've also had sort of the, the micro level consolidation as well with our university hospital system had the main facility, plus a bunch of outlying clinics, each of which had their own labs. And within the last few years, those individual standalone labs were all consolidated into the central ARUP facility. So, you know, we've seen the problems both locally and at the national level from, uh, you know, trying to get everything to work together, I guess.
0: So with regard to things like patient safety and laboratory quality, what are the pros and cons of consolidation efforts in microbiology? And what are some of the biggest challenges that you've faced? Because it sounds like all of you have, have been through this process.
3: Well, you know, I have felt like we've been able to make some really great patient safety approaches with consolidation because we can make uniform approaches and leverage the strength of the larger facilities to help to support some of the smaller facilities that may not always have the resources or the expertise or the capabilities. Um, And so I think from a patient safety standpoint, we definitely can make a lot of gains. But one of the challenges that we have with consolidating multiple health systems is that each system may have a different set of patient safety or quality goals for that year. And I'm sure it may be the same thing for um if you're consolidating within a system, multiple hospitals. And so we have, you know, I have a separate set of infection control meetings, a separate set of stewardship meetings that I attend for each of the hospitals systems that are consolidated. But overall, I think it does lead to a more safe patient environment with consolidation by leveraging the strength of the larger facilities to support some of the smaller facilities.
4: Yeah. I would add to that um, one of the big Pros is the standardization that comes in the process. You know, each of the individual facilities may have different ways of doing each of the tests. And if they all come to one lab, obviously they're, well, in most cases, they're going to be done by the same method using the same criteria and the same standards. COVID kind of threw that out the window for, for, you know, the specific COVID testing. But I think for the most part, consolidation allows the benefit of, of that sort of standardization, which helps with, as Carissa was just saying, the diagnostic stewardship. She was talking about antimicrobial stewardship, but I think diagnostic stewardship all being handled by one place can really help drive more appropriate practice in in all the facilities consistency of workup you know if if hospital 1 worked up everything that grew on a urine culture but hospital 2 didn't you know you're going to have different antibiotic prescribing practices based on that and uh, so i think those are some big strengths i think one of the downsides though is The physicians can't just walk into the lab and see the plates and talk with the techs and find out what's going on. Um, That to me, I think it's one of the biggest downsides of the central lab sort of approach.
0: Playing off that concept of the clinician interaction, you know, because I, when I was at Harvard at the Brigham Women's Hospital, it was, it was a daily thing that the clinicians would walk in and look at the gram stain and et cetera, et cetera. So what have you, or any of you done to ameliorate that problem or, or, you know, to, to kind of provide still that interaction or that possibility of interaction with the clinicians?
4: I'll explain briefly what happened here after the services moved out of the hospital, they established for the infectious disease physicians a closed circuit TV system so that we could do sort of plate rounds in front of a camera and the ID docs could talk with the techs and and there was some back and forth there. This was before, you know, Wi-Fi and, and everything. So uh I was gonna say now you
1: can just do a Zoom call, right? Like here's yeah, exactly. what I got yeah. on this
4: plate. Yeah um we actually did that for uh, for our microfellow rounds for a while but back in the day when they did this apparently initially lots of the id docs were in the room for rounds time and participating and everything and after a few months there was nobody in the room anymore and that kind of fizzled i think i think having that physical interaction is an important part of the process and you know the the docs being able to look at the plates themselves and have that face-to-face discussion
1: well, and cultivating the relationships too, like between the techs and the ID docs, it's yeah. super important, you know, because you get kind of a shorthand between the doctors that you work with on a regular basis. It's like, oh, Dr. Mutual's not going to want to know about this or, you know, whatever. Yeah. I think that's really beneficial and it's the consolidation makes that harder. Yeah.
0: I also think that, you know, microbiology fellows, people that do microbiology fellowships can be ID doctors or pathologists. And when they lose that, interaction or that ability to do that, they might not have that, you know, desire. Cause I know that we had fellows that would apply and they would say, oh, after doing plate rounds for two or three months, I really made the decision that I really want to do that. So we have to think about if we're if we're going to miss something like that or miss out on that.
4: Yeah. What we ended up with is a dedicated pager for the microbiology service that our fellows are on. And the ID docs use that all the time. And so there's a lot of telephone communication, but it's not the same as coming into the lab.
3: Yeah, we do weekly rounds. So it's not it's not as frequent as I would like, but pre-COVID, we definitely did weekly ID rounds where we brought people from the different health systems, pharmacy, stewardship, residents, fellows, right? The whole team would come into the micro lab and we'd do some good cases and show and tell. With COVID, we moved that whole platform to a virtual platform. And we've actually had much more participation with doing it virtually. And it's held up so far, but I think people are just still used to the virtual environment. And the other thing that the virtual environment allowed us to do is, you know, we're about two miles away from the larger teaching hospitals and, and you know, the kind of just higher acuity hospitals, but we're many, many miles away, right? Three and four hour drives from some of the smaller facilities. And so by moving to virtual, we've been able to get some of the ID doctors or just ID adjacent people at some of those smaller hospitals have started to log on. And so we've really used it as an educational opportunity for the people that we've never interacted with before. And we're able to have a lot more of those conversations. We've also invited micro lab techs from hospitals that are not part of our system, and may not have a dedicated clinical microbiology lab director, maybe they just have a larger clinical lab director. And so they're able to come on and get some of that education piece as well. So moving to the virtual platform, I think has actually helped us in some ways, um, when it comes to that education and plate rounds interaction. And I think for us, we
2: have some smaller facilities that may not have fellows and things like that, but we do do something similar in that we facilitate meetings between the satellite lab managers. So that we can ensure communications education flow between the laboratories. And so we really rely on the managers of our satellite labs to be, you know, our main contacts at the hospital at the same time making ourselves available for communications with the various
0: physicians. Erin, any comment on that? Yeah.
2: Yeah,
5: I would just say our our setup seems to be, I'd say, most similar to uh, Carissa's in that we have twice weekly scheduled rounds with our ID team and all the trainees come, pathology, the internal medicine, residents, the med students who are on service, a pharmacy and their residents. We talk about cases in real time. So it is very much almost like stopping by the lab. We pull gram stains, we can bring up plate images on our laboratory automation system. We use Epic, our electronic health information system. We can pull all this up and we have a nice area to do that in. And we just talk through cases in real time. So it's worked very well. We did go on a bit of a hiatus with COVID and we would really hope that maybe we could bring that virtually, but it just didn't really translate virtually. We set it up, but we didn't get great participation. And ideally I was thinking, It's really great to see uh, Dr. Culverett's experience because I was hoping that that could be a way that even without COVID, we could expand that to the other hospitals because we are located in our main teaching hospital. So it's easy to get to if you're on service at that location. And we have three other hospitals in our system. And so we were hoping that the ID physicians at the other areas would log in and such, but that hasn't really taken up as much as I would have liked. So I kind of want to
1: circle back to something you guys kind of brought up here and there, and that's small laboratories at community hospitals. So if you all have a small lab at a community hospital within your network uh, that's undergoing consolidation, can you guys talk a little bit about like what tests must remain at that smaller hospital and how their test
5: dictionary is determined? Can you kind of walk us through that? I think so much of it is kind of dependent on the hospital, you know, so many factors like what's the patient acuity there? What's their lab staffing? Are they able to staff their lab? Do they have any degree of micro specialization or is it just a generalist? How far is it to your main lab? I think it's going to be a little bit different for every every lab based on those parameters. And we actually don't have any small community hospital labs. So I'll let someone else maybe comment on what they actually keep.
2: Yeah. I mean we have a lot of small community hospital labs in our system. But I think what you said is accurate in that a one size fits all model is not going to work. Some of them are less than an hour away from our laboratory, and some of them are four hours away. So, you know, while we like for the laboratories to keep their own blood culture instrumentation and the ability to do gram stains from positive blood cultures. Not 100% of our labs do have that. Most of them do, but you know, the very small ones that are 40 minutes away, they still send us blood bottles. So that's one test. I think some of the rapid tests that can be completed quickly are maintained at the satellite labs. And that's something that is becoming easier with the rapid molecular tests that are available. All of our satellite labs have their own molecular COVID testing now. Um, Same with flu. Yeah, I think some companies are
1: doing like a combo COVID RSV flu test,
2: right? Yeah, right. So things like that are out there. And I think It's important to point out that this is something that undergoes revision from time to time, right? Because our labs, they kept C. difficile, but now it's kind of a mess because are they doing molecular C. difficile first or are they doing the toxin antigen test first? And and we have to get them all on the same page there. So it is a mixed bag of what they keep, but they tend to keep the rapid test, gram stains from sterile fluids, ideally, if they feel capable of doing that. And blood culture, I think, are the big ones.
3: Yeah, that's that's been our experience where we really, when I first came, there was only one facility within um, all of the systems that we support that was still doing some microbiology And the challenge was that while they had the one person who really liked micro, then that person got promoted to like a supervisor or something. And so then there was was not another microbiologist, you know, within three counties. So we ended up consolidating in that remaining system. So now all of the community hospitals, they do the gram stains from the sterile site. And I think the molecular and rapid testing has been really important. And I, you know, I really hope to see a lot more of that and a lot of that, more of that distribution to those sites, but we've really centralized that. I think even with the gram stains, many of our hospitals are very small. And when we think about gram stains from sterile sites, That means that a tech might, in a year, see one or two gram stains. So what we've started to look at are options to get digital images of the gram stains, to have them interpreted at the central lab, doing things to help to support the testing closer to the patient, but the interpretation happening where the expertise lies. And now in this digital environment, I think we have a lot of opportunity to do that. The only other thing I'll point out around our consolidation efforts is that we're also so iso or cap 15189 accredited as a system and so that has really helped us with our standardization across all of the facilities that we all have a very standardized approach to everything that we do so that's really helped us along the way
4: yeah i mean i think all of the things that have been mentioned are critical tests that if at all possible should stay at the remote you know small hospitals i might also add like cryptococcal antigen Testing, it's easy to do, it's high impact. The discussion of the multiplex PCR panels, those are again easy to do and have high impact if you don't have the capability of doing culture at the remote sites. You know, some of the other things that definitely depend on what the facility actually has in terms of lab capability beyond just gram stain, um, if it was pretty far from the central lab and transport becomes an issue, you know, the time it takes to get specimens there, then I would say expanding beyond just gram stain for sterile body sites to doing cultures for those sterile body sites as well on-site, you know, maybe eye cultures, those can have a significant impact and and pretty rapid deterioration in some cases, maybe even AFB stains depending on the population and and one that didn't come up already. But again, population dependent and probably not so much for Carissa and I, but GIMSA stains, you know, if you have a lot of people coming in from other parts of the world where malaria is prevalent, then I think having somebody to do a GIMSA stain would be important.
0: Yeah. And I like, thanks so much for pointing that out. I think all those examples are really illustrative. And and one of the things I like about it is that you're pointing out things where you have to have a skilled microbiologist for some of these tests you keep. And then you have to have, you know, sort of a, a high quality lab tech that can run an automated system. And, you know, so it's not like you can just train anybody to do it. You still need microbiologists at these sites. And Chris's example of when the microbiologist left having to consolidate because there wasn't one. I think it's just the value of of that microbiologist. And I also like the idea that you're talking about Mark of of kind of really specifically determining where, you know, where and when you need those things. And not to put Carissa on the spot, but New Mexico has been a leader in understanding the data from your labs and where it comes from by patient, by zip code, et cetera. So you're really in a position to do that. And so I wish, I wish we all had the ability to to really finely tune our labs to our populations like that. Let's change directions just a little bit and talk about total laboratory automation. So for the microbiology lab, it'd be great if you can just tell us what that means, total laboratory automation and some examples, maybe even some specific system examples.
5: I just want to start out by saying you know total laboratory automation the name is a bit of a misnomer because there's it's not total but our hospital uses the bd Keystra system and just briefly how it works is we have a front-end processor that does automatic Plate labeling, specimen processing, streaking, sends them to the incubator, all the plates to the incubator via track system. We read all our cultures on monitors. They're imaged by imaging software automatically at set time points, depending on the culture type. And then when we need to actually manipulate a plate, say you've identified something that needs further workup, uh, you call those plates out to attach workbenches where manual testing takes place.
1: Wow, that sounds like pretty high tech. (laughs) It's like I've only been off the micro bench for eight
5: years, but that's like way different than how I worked. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it definitely is different, but you can just watch it for a long period of time. It's very calming and
4: soothing.
0: (laughs) Other examples? Mark?
4: We uh, actually have the Wasp Lab, the Copan Wasp Lab system at ARUP and it's very similar uh, to the Keystra system, at least in our implementation. I know a lot of these systems are very flexible in the layout and what features, what components are installed at any given site. And it's it's based on the, the type of work that that site does. So our Copan system actually does have a track to the attached benches. I know a lot of the wasp lab systems have more of a, a central hub where you have a, a canister of plates that come out and, and you have one canister for a certain type of culture or a certain type of media or whatever. And those are sort of manually taken from that central hub to the workstations. But like I said, they're flexible. They can be modified to fit the lab's needs. I think, you know, one of the things that I've heard discussed in Total Lab Automation is it's not Total Lab Automation if you don't have tracks that go to every piece of it. And I don't get hung up on that. To me, if it's pretty much a a specimen to trash kind of system that hits all the parts in between, that meets my definition for Total Lab Automation.
1: You know, back whenever I was on the microbench, it was just sort of when the TLA idea was sort of sort of starting to hit the mainstream it was already mainstream for other parts of the lab right like chemistry hematology whatever everything's you know running on tracks and got their own refrigerators and stuff but it really hadn't hit micro yet so I'm really kind of interested to hear your take on improving the workflow cuz that's how it's being sold kind of right like this is going to improve your workflow you'll be able to do more with less people you'll this is going to be great So, can you guys kind of talk about some of the personnel changes you had to go through or or maybe some challenges that you had
4: bringing,
1: you know, a system like this kind of into
4: your laboratory? Can I go back to the previous one about the a different system. But there is actually another system that I have not seen anywhere in the US. I think they're mostly in France right now. But there's a company called I2A that has what they call a total lab automation system with smart incubators and the front end plating sample handling and plating system. So I think, you know, it might be worth including that in the discussion as well. I don't have any understanding of how it's different or if it's even available in the US for sale. I assume this is mostly a U.S.-centric kind of discussion here, but I've seen it at the ASM meetings, uh, sort of in action, and it was um, an intriguing system. They have a lot of flexibility in their front end, different ways to inoculate plates and things like that. so.
0: So let me ask a qualifying question. So from the point of view of the human in the lab, when you have the, the the three systems that you've described, it seems to me that the human component is accessioning to tell the system what they need to do with this, or are these systems smart enough to figure out what to do with them? In other words, someone still has to say, oh, this is a CSF and we need to do X, Y, or Z, or, oh, this is a stool sample, or just, is that the minimum you have to say is just what the sample is? What, what's the human interaction at the beginning?
4: Yeah, it's even less than that. It, well, it depends on how much interfacing you have with the system. All of these systems have the capability to talk to multiple different lab information systems. So basically, you need to have a barcode and a session, a a sample number in your lab information system. And then, at least on the, the Copan system, you put tubes of certain sizes in the same racks together so the system knows you know how big the caps are and how deep the tubes are so that's the only thing it really needs to know and when it scans the barcode it knows all the information about that it knows that it's a urine culture so i need to pull these plates or it's a stool specimen so i need to pull this other set of plates so you really don't have to accession anything and that barcode
0: was was generated by order entry by the clinician
4: well, at some level. So there is some manual processing that has to occur because, uh, you know, when these specimens are collected over at the hospital, it's got the hospital barcodes. But when they come to us, we have to have the lab barcodes put on. So there is a touch there. But in some very integrated facilities where it's the hospital going right into the lab, I would assume there could be all universal barcoding that could be used for that accessioning step as well. Marissa?
3: Yeah. And I mean, I think to one of the points that we were talking about earlier around standardization is that you can, I think for all of the systems, we have this bi-directional interface that can go not just at the test level, but then at the the source level. And so if we think about like a urine specimen, and maybe you have a different upfront plating process for a clean catch midstream than you do for a catheter than you do for a nephrostomy urine, there are some things that we just couldn't even fast putting into place for manual processes and having people look not just that it's a urine but then what type of urine specimen was it that we would have loved to do before. Now with automation we're able to say, we can we can get even more specific, not just at the test code level, but really at that specimen source level for how we plate, what plates are added, what quantity is struck, if it's a one microliter loop or a 10 microliter loop, or how much specimen is added um, to the plate in the case of the Keister system. So I think this really brings us to a really nice point of standardization in the laboratory that we haven't always had the capability to do before or or do well. <laughs> and consistently if we try. Yeah, on the
5: barcode issue at our hospital, the physician puts a barcode on, we log it in to micro just to say it's arrived and we put it on on our system and it uses those barcodes too. As they said, ours is all based on culture. We have not reached that second level of specificity, which I think would be amazing. But yeah, if it, it knows if it's a urine, if it's a wound and it pulls the appropriate media and plates it from there.
2: I'm the outlier here, cause we haven't made the leap in our laboratory. And I have a question kind of along the lines of what we were just discussing in terms of the human aspect. So, I mean, we do change a fair amount of orders here in our lab. Something comes in and they had ordered an aerobic culture and an anaerobic culture is more appropriate for that source. Are you saying that the instrumentation is capable of reading the source and the order type and making that change, or would that be too much?
5: I would say in our lab that is done at the login phase when. Specimens come into micro, we look at it, make sure it's appropriate. At that point, if something needs to be changed, we would manually change it and then, you know, update the order and then put it on the instrument. I don't think the instrument, I mean, a lot of times it's hard for humans to figure out what the yeah. physician was thinking. I don't know that TLA is quite there yet, but maybe someday.
3: Yeah, I think that we still have that accessioning step where you would make any of those type of corrections. But you know, there would be the capability, right? If, if you just decide anything, what if somebody misses it? And that's what I really love about automation is that we can program the rules that we have in our procedures. And so if somebody, the order on there is an aerobic culture and what's submitted is a joint fluid that you know you wanna have anaerobes on, you can have, you know, aerobic culture But if the source is joint fluid, you can automatically require that it adds plates. So really for me with automation, it's like we go back and look at all of our procedures and what we try to get humans to memorize is what you can ultimately, like with enough time, effort, and energy, you could program that into the automation. So you never miss a joint fluid that needs anaerobes and maybe a broth. Yeah, that's what I thought you were saying. So that makes sense. Yeah, you can
1: like put those algorithms into... The interface and it just knows like oh yeah i'm gonna need to drop a cdc plate on this even if they didn't actually order an anaerobic culture and uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the personnel challenges that you guys have had or or maybe personnel successes like did your workflows improve you know that sort of thing can we talk about that aspect of it a little bit
3: Sure, I can maybe start. So we brought in a lot of volume. One of the reasons why we were able to justify bringing in automation was that we were seeing volume increases like 15%, 20% year over year volume increase. Um, and so we had to justify whether or not we were going to bring in additional people or bring in automation. And so we went the direction of bringing in automation. And then we had to prove that we did what we said we were going to do with the automation. So there were a lot of conversations at the board level, but we really were able to improve our workflow. We changed some of our tech times, that the, their shifts. So we went from most of the text coming in at 7 a.m. and we would have staffing all the way from 7 a.m. until half past midnight across two shifts. We now have people who come in at 5 a.m. to start to read cultures and our last individuals who are doing culture reading, they leave at 3.30 at night. So we only have, most days of the week, we only have a two-hour gap where there's nobody in the lab doing micro work. So we've had to make some of those adjustments to really capitalize on the gains um, in our lab, but I think we've really started to see that, and we've published some of those gains and return on investment.
1: Yeah, that sounds really interesting to me, because I know back when we worked, whenever I worked in in micro, the um, particular place I was at, just had day shifts, 7 to 3.30, and it was so frustrating, you know, because we'd get... We were a big, I guess, satellite location with a lot of branches sending in uh, their specimens. And so we'd be trying to read these urine cultures at noon that just got plated at 930 the night before. And it's like, okay, this isn't like a real great read on this culture or whatever. So it's cool that you guys are basically running a 24 hour micro lab. I would think that's just better for patient care in general.
0: Aaron?
5: Yeah, I 100% agree with everything Chris has said. In my case, I joined a lab after they had implemented TLA, so I recommend that as the number one way to get a TLA after listening to my I, I recommend that too. <laughs> so, here at Norsha, we had had the BD Keystone for about two and a half years when I joined. So, working very well, all specimen types were on board. But, you know, we still continue to fine tune. I feel like it's like procedures. You're never actually 100% done with any procedure. And it's really been interesting for me just from what I hear from the technologists. I think that, like, for example, back to what Carissa was saying, we had this situation where they looked at all our courier routes and we redid all the timing and i should say that we are a four hospital system um and we recently acquired two additional hospitals but We have about 25 immediate cares and over hundred physician offices. So a great deal of our work is outpatient and we rely on those couriers. They cut a lot of the couriers and changed all the time. So that was an opportunity for us to look at what time we're receiving cultures, the types of cultures, what time they were ready to be read, because to Kelly's point, you don't have to worry with laboratory automation that you're reading a urine that's four, you know, five hours old or something like that. It is imaged at very specific times, and only after it's imaged does it come up on a reading list. So everything is standardized as far as timing. But we also wanted to make sure our technologists were at the lab at the time when cultures were ready to be read, and we didn't need them there when there really wasn't a lot to be read. So the software that comes with these laboratory automation systems makes it easier to track when things arrive, when things are ready to read, and then you can adjust your staffing. So maybe you don't need 20, maybe you want 24-7 staffing, which can be very difficult to achieve for plate reading. But if you look at your numbers, maybe you only need with 16-hour staffing, you can achieve 90 or 95% of what you hope to gain. So you can really be strategic about when you have technologists there. And I think that's one of the best things about automation. It just allows you to be really innovative and efficient.
0: So when we think about both consolidation and total laboratory automation or TLA, when I was preparing for this, I was finding a lot of comments that were saying that, you know, it's really cost savings or fiscal implications that drive CEOs or C-suites to make decisions because ultimately there's this capital output, right, in order to do this. Everyone in the lab could want it, but until the CFO says you can have it, you know, you can't really have it. And suggesting that that's really the biggest driver in choosing these processes. Is that is that true in all of your opinions, or do you actually think the benefits to patients and quality are actually more important and really just have to make the fiscal argument through those benefits to get your CFO or whoever to approve it?
4: I would say that the cost justification is a necessary evil. You've, you've got to justify it somehow or else you won't end up with automation. But what it seems like from talking to a lot of people with these systems is that the costs may not actually go down, but the lab can handle more work. And I think that's something that Carissa has talked about in the past, where this continuing increase in volume, and you either hire more people, or you find a more efficient way to handle it. And automation is often that more efficient way. If you sort of on the back end, then go back and say, well, how much would it have cost to hire all the additional people to do this, then you can do the cost justification sort of in hindsight, but nobody's, gonna, nobody's really going to accept that on the front end, I don't think. But I think the quality benefits are are certainly there. Aaron just mentioned the the idea of the six hour urine reads. you know something gets plated late and somebody comes in early to do the morning reads. And you've got something that's been there for six hours. You may pick up an E. coli that way, but you're not going to pick up everything. So you can have false negatives. Another thing that we've done here recently that is really beneficial is, um, as Carissa said, you can program this however you want it. And we've uh, put our our positive blood culture subs onto the automation and do a six-hour read. And if there is enough growth on the six-hour read, we send it to Maldi or we send it to set up for susceptibility testing. And so we get a lot better coverage, whereas before the blood bench was staffed at a certain time and somebody was always there to pull bottles off and sub them, but the subcultures weren't always worked up 24 hours a day. So now we've got those things coming off on schedule when they're ready to be read And um, we are a 24-7 lab. So we do have somebody there all the time that when that ticker comes down and and you see a blood culture sub is ready to read, you go read it. It's, I think, a, a big benefit to patient care.
5: I'm all about quality as a laboratory director, but I do think that you need to make the case to your administration. And I just, I feel like Chris is not tooting her own horn loud enough. She just had a great paper that looked at four different labs and showed Uh, Really great efficiencies and uh, cost justification data for all of your administrators, but one other thing I wanted to mention in addition is when we got our TLA part of our justification was it allowed us to stay inside our existing space which was inside the hospital and we really thought that was important for the reasons mark talked about earlier like that consultation with your id team and that connection to your physicians so we were out of space and by bringing in total lab automation it allowed us to renovate in our existing footprint rather than move to an off-site lab which would have been very i mean renovations not cheap but moving to an off-site was something both we didn't want to do for a variety of reasons, but also super costly for administration. So I think when they looked at the two, they decided staying on site was preferable.
3: And and I I totally agree with everything that's been mentioned. And I'll just also point out that I think we're now... um, you know, we started with, you know, the justification was about volume and efficiencies and, and those gains. But now that we have more sites that have automation systems, I think we're really starting to see the patient impact. And I think there really is tangible patient impact to having the automation system. So we're seeing things like faster turnaround times, significantly faster turnaround times on urine cultures being read much earlier because you have this closed system. So we're getting better organism growth and you can read a culture at 12 hours instead of having you know, having to wait for 24-hour growth um, and things like that. So I think we're seeing faster turnaround times. Mark mentioned, you know, getting those blood culture subs into an incubator and doing the, the maldi from a smudge plate or from, you know, just the, the minimum growth. And so we're getting faster and better turnaround times. You know, the CLSI just in the 2021 um, CLSI M100 is the blood culture grams uh this diffusion AST. And so I mean to me as soon as as that came out, that automatically that's perfect for laboratory automation because you do your plate you put it your diffusion down, put them into the incubator and then we can read the the zone sizes right and and have that be again more standardized and employ automation in that and having faster turnaround times. We've even seen in our lab things that we would not have been able to grow in standard instruments and standard incubators we're able to grow faster and we don't have to do a second incubation day for the things that would have been tiny so there really are now that we're we're implemented i think many facilities are seeing not just the efficiencies but a clinical impact that's that's improving patient care
1: i want to kind of ask a question about like downtime and contingency planning and what happens when your total lab automation decides to take a crap on a Wednesday night? What? How do you fix it? What do you? What? Are, what are your workarounds? Let's just talk
3: about that for a little well, bit. It's never when, on a Wednesday night. It's always yeah. on the Friday right before a holiday. So that's when it is. <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> so yeah, let's talk
1: about
5: yeah, your your workarounds. I was just going to say that um, most of the downtimes that at least we have are planned. You know, they're down for maintenance. They're de- if it's going to be down for you know, computer patch upgrade, you know, software upgrades, things like that. So we are able to uh, work with the manufacturer and our internal uh, IT team to schedule those at our least busy time of day. So that's been really helpful. And the maintenance makes actual unscheduled downtimes less likely or less frequent. And I think just planning is key, at least for us, as far as unscheduled downtimes. We have a document that that goes through all the different areas of the instrument that could be down and how long we anticipate that downtime to be. If it's short, and I would say short is less than eight hours, we've actually found that moving to a manual process too early is an enormous amount of time. And if we just Stay the course, we can make up for that eight-hour downtime in very shockingly little time. So we do not move to some kind of manual process in, unless it's a, a complete catastrophe. Also, I would say it depends, like there's so many parts of automation. Only once, I think, did we have an unscheduled downtime of the entire instrument at once. Usually it's like, maybe your gripper for the caps is not gripping uh, as much as it should. So maybe there's a part there in the processing that you can't do, but you can manually inoculate the plates, put them on the instrument, and it does the incubation, the imaging, you plate read, like all of that is working fine. Or uh, maybe one of your incubators is down. Well, we can reroute plates to other, we have four incubators, and I think it's pretty standard to have many. So you can reroute them, all the plates to a different incubator. And so then It's just little workarounds like that that solve the problem, I would say 99% of the time.
0: So we've largely been talking about what's happening now, what present, the systems that are present, how they work, what consolidation has meant now. But what I'd really like to ask is, because microbiology, I'm a microbiologist, you know, I love microbiology. And when I was in training and in practice, we were always talking about like the, you know, direct patient to diagnosis, you know, immediate answers, that kind of stuff, which still haven't gotten there yet. And I don't know that that we will necessarily uh, in our careers, but maybe sometime soon. But what do you think the the future looks like right now? Where, where are we going from here? And I'd like to hear about consolidation and TLA. I mean, do we continue to consolidate until there's just one lab in Utah? Or was it? <laughs> what's the point there? And then with TLA, you know, <laughs> with TLA, what you know, what what would be the next thing you'd like to have in your lab that you don't have uh, that would have to come in the future?
4: I'll jump in on that. I will say, from personal experience, that not all lab information system vendors have full functionality with TLA systems, and that has been a big hurdle for us in terms of getting full functionality out of our system. So I would hope that in the very near future, these vendors really step it up and and make sure that all of the functionality that the TLA systems can perform can be handled by the LIS systems. And it's not like this is totally new stuff. These systems have been out for quite some time. Their communications is pretty standardized, you know, the the formats they're using. It's just the, I think, lack of recognition from some of the LIS vendors that labs would actually want this. Well, why would you want another system telling the lab information system what's going to happen to these cultures? You just type it in, right? That is, I think, a significant limitation with some lab information systems right now. Others seem like they're fantastic and they're they're really flexible. The one we have is not. But I think some of the things that I know are on the near horizon that will be really useful are like the colony picking robots where they will pick a colony, spot it to a multi-target or pick a colony and make suspensions for susceptibility testing. Those things will be really useful, uh, and again, those are uh, near future. Some of the things that Carissa just mentioned with the direct blood culture susceptibility testing—I believe both of the the current systems in the U.S. have disk diffusion capabilities. I don't know; maybe the Keystra. Uh, I I thought I had seen that with the Keystra, maybe not. I know Copan's system does have that, and so you could integrate that in a, in a essentially a fully automated fashion. And so that, I think, is, is sort of, again, near future or or maybe even current in some labs.
2: I got to say, that feature has me drooling.
4: Yeah. I mean, for, for labs that are already doing disk diffusion, it seems like a, a no-brainer. So another thing that I think, again, with the, the software within the TLA systems, the ability to read and interpret the cultures, not just put it up on a screen for the technologists to read, that's another big thing that it's here, but I think there's still a lot of room for growth in that area. And then one thing that I'm I'm taking up this whole thing, because this is what I was getting excited about was, um, you know, trying to put a bug in the manufacturer's ears on things like electronic noses in the incubators to sniff out the volatiles and actually do the identification during incubation. Yeah, there are things that do this and, and it's not that crazy. So, you know, it would take uh, maybe one of those sensors at each location, but there are colorimetric ways of doing it. There are electronic ways of doing it. That would be great because you would get the identification while the plates are cooking and um, you would potentially even bypass that downstream visual. Do, more, I can see like doing it presumptive stuff. that way, you know, it's like, yeah. yeah
1: Presumptively, this is a streptomyces.
4: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some, some bugs apparently have distinct enough uh, sort of volatile emissions that you can get a, a very solid identification that way. So that that's something that cool. I would love to see in, yeah, that's really uh, cool. in these TLA systems sometime in the near future if not that, maybe expanding from just white light to, you know, UV and infrared imaging to maybe find spectral patterns kind of like Raman or, or IR spectroscopy or something where you could, by scanning the colony, get an identification. And I know that there are systems that are looking at sort of the fine detailed characteristics of colonies and, and you know, sort of the beginnings of, of identification. And I know Carissa has had experience with this. So that's, I think, starting now and hopefully will continue to develop in the future
3: i really hope to see an automation right i mean right now automation is the technology for the big giant centralized labs but i would really like to see when we're thinking about consolidation i would like to see a decentralization of the technology right so that the specimens are staying closer to the patient they're getting plated, they're going into the incubator as close to the patient as possible because no matter how fast I can read a culture, right, maybe I can get it into the incubator and if it's a urine and it's E. coli, I can see it in eight hours, right? But it still maybe took 12 or 24 hours to get to my laboratory. So what I would really like to see is that the plating, the incubation, and the imaging is decentralized. And that what we consolidate is that we consolidate the local expertise. And we do the reading and the interpretation at a a centralized point in the lab because that was the issue, right? We did not have the personnel that had the expertise to read the plates. And that's why we had to move the specimens from where they were. New Mexico is a very, very rural state. And so, uh, you know, we only are gonna have so much expertise um, and it's mostly gonna be centralized to Albuquerque, but I have always felt like, you know, if somebody wants to live in rural New Mexico and they wanna live on acres of farm and horses and, and all the things, they still deserve to have really really high quality laboratory services and right now we do that through mechanisms around consolidation but i think we have to speak to the limitations of consolidation and that specimen transit time especially for my facilities where i have many sites that only have one pickup per day doesn't matter how fast i do it once it gets here It's been waiting 24 hours to get started. And so I really hope to see more decentralization of technology like we've done with molecular diagnostics, like we've done with rapid testing. I want to see that same thing for microbiology so that we can better serve those patients who are decentralized from the major urban centers.
5: That would be, yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. And just to that point, I would say just automate, automate, automate. I mean, there are, like I said, a lot of processes that the TLA has automated, but it's not total in my mind. And so things that Mark talked about, like the identification, plating things to MALDI doing susceptibility testing in my lab. We are a diffusion lab and you can do it on Keystra, but it's very manual at this point. So more of the processes need to be automated for that to be a realistic routine process. And I know that I'm sure both manufacturers are moving in the US are moving towards that method. But then you, ha- you do have a lot of options because both the systems are very flexible in what you can purchase. And so you could either centralize and make a giant centralized lab or you could decentral And it just would give you a lot more flexibility because no two health systems are the same.
0: And Sarah, as someone who's not yet done TLA and you've heard all these great ideas, what would you like to see in that future system?
2: I mean, I think the decentralization idea is very interesting, especially from somebody else in a rural state. And obviously, Cost is a large barrier to implementation of these systems in laboratories. So, you know, I would love to see the cost come down. Um, <laughs> I think, as I said, the, the uh, susceptibility testing feature, if I could implement that, that would make a huge difference in our patient population and also probably save costs. Because Kirby Bauer Disk Effusion is so cheap compared to what it is that we're doing. So, that is a feature I'm very much looking forward to. I would like COVID to go away from my lab tomorrow and then maybe <laughs> it was First it. But I'm, COVID. Not, I'm not getting that wish Monday <laughs> though.
0: Well, thank you guys so much. This has been um, super interesting. Thank you for participating. I really appreciate you all being on here and I'll just do a little shout out to one of my favorite movies, the Andromeda strain, the original one, not that terrible remake that they did. There's a scene where the microbiologist is looking at plates on a screen and the big signal is one starts to grow and she sees it on the plate. And that was 50 years ago, 40 years mm-hmm. ago when they made that movie. So I think, you know, Hollywood is, is way ahead. So hopefully what we're seeing in Hollywood will, will come to the lab soon. I know our listeners learned a lot and, and we really appreciate you being on here.
1: I just want to remind our listeners to, one, subscribe to Inside the Lab on your favorite podcast aggregator, and two, tell your friends and tell them to subscribe.
0: And please don't forget that you can receive CME or CLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ASCP store or on our website, www.ascp.org. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you next time.